Let's pray together. Father, we're not we're here for you. We want to have our lives changed by you. Please come and speak to us. The Bible, your word, is you speaking to us every time we read it. And we want to submit ourselves to your word. God, we trust you. We're your disciples and students. Now speak to us in Jesus' name. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, so if, you, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, or if you don't know the story of Jonah, Jonah was a man who was told by God, go to Nineveh and preach to them because their wickedness has come before me. Go and declare that if they don't repent, judgment's going to come. And so the Lord came to his prophet Jonah, and Jonah went in the opposite direction and eventually got thrown into the sea, got eaten by a great fish, where he experienced a change of heart. Funny that. <laughs> then uh, the fish spat him up on the sand and he decided to respond to God's call again. And this is what we're reading now. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let, not, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under its shade till he he should see what what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up, The next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not Labor, nor did you make it grow, 
which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Which is just one of the best ends to a, a, a book in the Bible. And also much cattle. And that's the kind of question that would come up in a pub quiz one day. What's the last word of the, of the book of Jonah? Answer, cattle. I want to talk today about God's heart for losers and rebels. And we start by looking at Jonah, a loser. Someone who had lost out and missed God's plan, God's call for his life. Chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to look at two verses. This is one of them. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. That right there is a staggering, staggering phrase. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. We have an almost debilitating fear of failure at times. Many of us, we find it very hard to consider going for promotion or to move town. We won't pray. find it hard to do things that are outside of our comfort zones. We find it hard to share an opinion or to ask a question of a teacher, even if it makes us look stupid. We won't step up to lead and take responsibility, many of us, in the places where we are, because we're often afraid of failure. A friend who is a Ukrainian leader, church leader, he says in their country they really struggle for leaders because of what the communist era had done for them. Anyone who stepped up to lead was taken down by the government, and now they really struggle to find leaders. Well, in a lot of our churches, it's the same. A lot of communities, it's the same. It's one thing to complain against the MPs. It's another thing to step up and do it yourself. Um, To step up, to put your head above the parapet, to say, I'll lead, I'll have a go. Many of us, we won't do that because we're afraid of failing. I mean, it's either that or it's just that we don't believe in a vision of something or negatively or kind of more sinisterly, I suppose we're just often so caught up in our own lives that the thought of leading someone else and helping to make our communities or our churches more like what God wants for them is not something that interests us. The Bible tells us about a God who uses failures and losers, people who make mistakes. I mean, you, just a cursory glance of the Old Testament, you see story after story after story of people who get it really wrong, really wrong. So Abraham, like the founder and hero of our faith, who's told by God, I will give you a son and I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless the whole world through him. He's married to his wife, Sarah. And they can't have kids together. And they try and nothing seems to be happening. Years go by and nothing seems to be happening. They're waiting for the promise of God and eventually they say, we can't do this. Well, if you see my servant girl, Hagar, Sarah says, why don't you have sex with her and produce a child by her and maybe God will bless. Maybe the best thing we can do is take matters into our own hands because if God wants to give us a son, he's not doing it. We've prayed, we've asked. So I've got a great plan. So they have a child by, Abraham has a child by Hagar and God says this is not the child of promise. All you've produced by your own efforts is just the servant the son of a slave girl all you ever produce by your own efforts is just slavery instead he says i will give you a son of promise a child of promise and they wait and they wait and they wait and eventually along comes isaac 
Or if not Abraham, you've got the nation of Israel at the time who look at, they, they get into a land of their own and they think we want a king because all the countries around us have got a king. And God says, well, I'm your king. Why do you need a king? Oh, but we want to be like everybody else. Then the world will take us seriously. And so they look around and they think, this guy here, Saul, he's strong, he's impressive, he's tall, he's handsome, we'll have him. So Saul becomes king. Saul is good for a while, but it turns out his heart isn't really for God. Makes some mistakes and eventually God says, okay, well, you failed. You've lost trying your way. Didn't work out with Abraham and Hagar. Didn't work out with you. Let I'll pick the, the, the runt of the litter, David. We'll make him a king. And he becomes the king over the nation, the greatest king the nation ever has. Or, or you've got Joseph and his brothers. Joseph, with all of his dreams, I'm going to be very impressive. And so he tells his brothers, look at what I'm going to be. They throw him into a pit, sell him into slavery. He fails, he's lost. God redeems it. In the New Testament, you've got Peter who proudly announces, I'm gonna be in, I'll be in charge, Jesus. I'll never deny you. We're going to follow you to death itself. And then a little girl says to Peter, do you know Jesus? And he's scared because Jesus has been arrested. He fails. He sees Jesus across the courtyard and realizes he's denied this man, the one that he said he followed and would follow resolutely with his whole life. Failure after failure after failure after failure. You see it in the church. The church, failure after failure after failure. Of Christians who say, I'm going to live for God. And then we go home and think, oh, I've got to live for God after I've indulged or done something that I know I shouldn't. But ah, oh, I can't help it. But I'm going to live for God. In the Bible, there's a history of people disqualifying themselves and then God redeeming them. With the, I mentioned that I run a, a gap year, a training program for young people. We tell them at the start of the year, unless you fail several times through this year, you can't graduate. We won't pass you. It's not that kind of program. They do pass. But the principle's there. We want you to fail. We want you to try hard enough and step out your comfort zones enough that you risk something and it goes wrong. And so often when we gather as a group and we have a time of worship, I'll pick on someone and say, why don't you bring a prophetic song? They're like, I can't sing. I'm like, I don't care. Fail then. Or why don't you speak out in tongues and we'll interpret it. I can't do that. I don't care. Do it anyway. We want to see you fail. Because it's in the, when you step out, when you fail, when you get something wrong, you realize that God is very near to losers. He's very near to people who get things wrong. God knows you're human. He knows Jonah's human. Where do you need to hear the word of the Lord a second time in your life? Maybe you feel tempted to throw in the towel or to quit. Maybe you've ranted at God about something. and thought, That's it. I've had enough. I've tried your way. Turns out you're not going to help me. I'm going to do it my own thing. Maybe it's parenting. You're just exhausted. I mean, I say at the start of the meeting, we love having kids here, which is like a subliminal way of saying, please give us grace as they make a lot of noise and run around and we try our best to control them. <laughs> it's part of being family together, isn't it? Or maybe you're at that stage, you think, I just, I, I'd like to, I've got three kids, I'd like two. <laughs> Anybody want one? I'll give one back. Where, where is it that for you, you think, I need to hear the word of the Lord a second time? Maybe it is to do with church. You think, well, I, I thought I was going to lead and I, and I felt overlooked. Or I, I stepped up to lead and I got it wrong and I experienced a bad leader who treated me badly and I got rebuked for it and now I don't want to. Where do you need reminding like the Apostle Paul that God's power is made perfect in your weakness? Or where do you need refreshing from God? 
The love of God can run cold in our lives. In fact, when we pray right now, I just want to pray that God would refresh you, that you would hear the word of the Lord a second time. Father, I thank you that you're a God who is close to the brokenhearted and the failures. I know that you're a God who's merciful and slow to anger, as Jonah said. Lord, for those people who feel like they've really got it wrong, who've written themselves off, I pray that they would hear the word of the Lord coming to them a second time, breathing fresh life into dry bones, fresh vision. It's too small a thing. For people who think, well, I'm just, I really want, my, I've, sometimes people say, Father, uh, instead of believing for the best, I'll expect the worst, and that way I won't be disappointed. Oh, God. That, that's the sound of a despondent, broken, defensive heart. And you're the God who speaks a second time and says, rubbish, I've called you to the world to make disciples of all nations. You're frustrated here? Go to Tajikistan. There's plenty of people who need you there. God, increase our vision, I pray, in the name of Jesus. The only failure, the only failure is to stay still and to stay put because you're a God who speaks the word a second time. So I pray, speak that word a second time now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Jonah's blowing it isn't, isn't just that he failed. His, his actual kind of experience is in the area of evangelism. God said, go and share my message, and he, he didn't. And as Christians, we can relate to that. We've got a Savior who says to us, go into the world and make disciples of all nations. And many Christians say, but I don't know how, or I'm scared, or what if I get it wrong? What if people laugh at me? I'm sure you've had this experience, but I can be with Christians sometimes and we can be um, talking and everybody's very relaxed and then a non-Christian will ask a question about church and faith and everybody in the room (laughs) tenses up (laughs) and just tries to give them an answer and then (laughs) loosens up again. Did I do okay? Did I share the gospel all right? Was I okay? And you've had that experience where you just feel scared that someone's going to ask you something about Jesus because you really desperately don't want to fail, but you're terrified because you don't know all the answers. People say this to me all the time. I would share the good news message with someone, but I don't know the answers. You're like, what? Depends what question they ask, doesn't it? Yeah, but whatever question it is, I don't know. The, I don't know anything. What about the dinosaurs? I don't know. That's what we do. We, we build worst case scenario. I, I, I can't speak Greek and Hebrew, therefore I can't do X or Y or... And sometimes we just avoid situations where we know someone might potentially ask us about our faith or we deliberately don't mention where we were over the weekend or what we believe about something. I go get my hair cut and the hairdresser will ask me about my life. What do you do for a living? And I'll say, oh, I'm a dad. <laughs> Stay at home dad or oh, I run a gap here for young people volunteer in churches um, just yeah, helping churches uh, oh you're a pastor <laughs> sometimes we, we say, I don't want to be asked I I'm not going to know the answer whatever the question is and we tense up and often the church's approach to evangelism is, is the Monty Python approach run away run away in case we get asked run away run away run away there are a few ways that we blow it 
as Christians, we fail in the area of sharing our faith. One of them is we over-deliver. Someone asks us a question and we take half an hour to answer it. Um, we've all been there. I have a, a vivid memory in particular of a time that someone asked me. We were walking to the beach. and, we were, and Where I lived, we were half an hour's walk away from the beach. And he asked me what I believed. And I knew for the next half an hour I had him. So I, I, gave, him the go- I gave him the gospel. I told him the whole story from Genesis to Revelation. And when I got there, I said, do you have any more questions? He said, no. And he's never had any more questions. <laughs> it was horrible. So sometimes we over-deliver and we get it wrong. Sometimes... Sometimes we get it wrong by, by playing the moralist card. Have you ever done this? Like someone asks you what you believe and so you tell them what you believe on some ethical issue. Like as if that's the kind of cornerstone of our faith. Instead of just talking about Jesus. Again, I'll just share my dirty laundry. Um, I remember years ago, I really wanted to tell my family about Jesus, but they never asked me any questions. So to try to get them to ask a question, I said to my mom one day, I said, Mom, what do you think about abortion? And she answered, and I said, oh, so you believe in murder then? Oh my goodness, it was awful, absolutely awful. And whatever your thoughts are on that issue, that is a horrible way to talk to someone. I think I was hoping that she would say, oh wow, tell me about Jesus. Instead she thought, wow, you're an opinionated, so how, what are, I'm never going to ask you a question about Jesus again. Or last night, this is as fresh as last night. I'm just trying to get some group therapy. I was out for dinner for John's birthday and I sat with um, a a friend who's not a Christian and uh, and someone asked me if I was a vegetarian because, you know, we've been to, everyone's talking about, uh, everyone, a lot of people are talking about veganism and vegetarian these days and there's some benefits for not eating as much meat as we do. So I was talking about that and someone said, oh, you're a vegetarian. And I've never given this answer before in my life. I don't even believe this answer. But I said, no, I think vegetarianism is just a political ideology that I won't go in for. I don't even know what that means. But I said it. Turns out this guy I was talking to next to his wife, she's a vegetarian. They see the benefits of it. I see the benefits. But anyway, I was just like, and that's what now they go home thinking, well, that's what a Christian is, someone with some strongly formed opinions. It's not even a strongly formed opinion. I don't even know what I'm talking about. So we we get it wrong by over-delivering or by making out that the church is some moralistic thing. Come to church where we talk about moral, ethical issues. Like, no thanks. Judge me, no thanks. Or what we do is we avoid it, like I mentioned. So a couple of years ago, I was uh, another one. I was I was in Turkey, uh, in Istanbul. Where we were, you know, trying to plant churches and talk to people about Jesus. And I was with this group of, you know, with young people who had gone away for mission for the week. And we went to this cafe, and um, the the cafe group, uh, the waiter—that's what you call them, isn't it? The waiter came out, and he said, and he just said to the group in a kind of, you know, playful way, "Who's in charge around here?" And at, at that, you know, who's in charge, or who do you guys look to for, you know, who's going to tell you what to do? And someone next to me said, said oh, we should say Jesus. Jesus is the king and we should you know, get a conversation. But instead, I said, I'm in charge. Follow me. I'm the king. And, said, and they're like, oh, right, okay. And then someone said to me, why didn't you say Jesus? And I was like, that would have been a better thing to say. I'm not sure why I didn't do that. Anyway, I'm a failure. Um, if you can relate, you're in good company. But, uh, but as Christians, we do this. Uh, we, we're weird when it comes to evangelism sometimes. And we got a little video that, to watch that I came across recently that was hilarious on this issue um, on how Christians get it wrong. And maybe you can see some of yourselves in this. So let's, um, 
Let's watch uh, this. Excuse me. Can you help me? I've, I've just come from the park. Someone just came up and took off with my dog. Right, yes, hold on a minute, madam. Uh, George, there's a lady here who says she's looking for uh, eternal salvation in the Lord. I've got a cop there, sir. I didn't say that. I said someone came up and took off with my dog. Right, scratch that, George. She's changed her mind. <laughs> dog, you say, madam. Right, what's its name? It's a she. She is called Jess. Jess. Right, so that's J. E-S-U-S. -S. No, she's called Jess and you've just written Jesus. <laughs> so I have. Still, it's a lovely word, isn't it? <laughs> Jesus. Jesus. He died for all our sins, you know, madam. <laughs> oh, right, sorry, madam. So you say you were in the park when you lost uh, little Jessie. Right. Would that be the park by the church, madam? No, the one by the lake. Yeah, but you can see the Church of Our Lady from there, though, can't you, madam? Can you? Yeah. In that case, madam, would you have been able to hear the faithful singing from there, something like this? Kumbaya, Kumbaya. Would you have been able to hear anything like that, madam? Um, I, I suppose so. Hmm. And if you had heard it, how loudly would they have been singing? Would it have been sort of... Kumbaya, Kumbaya. Or more sort of... Hmm? All right. Well, um, look, if they had been singing from where I was, um, it would have been about as loud as, um, Kumbaya, my lord, kumbaya. Kumbaya. Now, madam, this fellow that took your dog, can you give us a description, please? Um, yes. He was quite tall mm -hmm. and had sort of um, long, straggly hair. Oh, and a, and a sort of a beard. That does sound a little bit like Jesus, doesn't it? Look, are you two going to do anything to help me? Yes. yes. And don't say, yes, we're going to pray. Ah. No, it's all right. Um, now, give this man who... Oh, my goodness. I've just been overwhelmed with the love of our Lord. <laughs> Lovely when that happens, isn't it? <laughs> Look, I don't wish to appear cynical, but somebody has stolen my dog, and I want to know if you're going to do anything about it. Uh, well, actually, madam, um, there's something here. Apparently, we arrested someone earlier today who answers the description you just gave us. Oh, well, that's marvellous news. Yeah, and even better news, we forgave him and let him go. <laughs> There we go. I don't know if you can relate to that. Um, the good news is that, that God can redeem and change our failings. Oh, I'm just going to keep going. Watch it again. Uh, a, friend, a friend of mine um, once invited one of his work colleagues to a church social. It was just a barbecue at someone's house. And this guy was someone he worked with in the city of London. They were in finance together. And actually, he was quite a big guy. He used to uh, train with Linford Christie, the, the athlete who was one of his running partners, who was quite strong, quite well built, very fast, not in church, invited him to this barbecue. Because my friend thought, well, this is a nice setting, a neutral place to help him get to know Christians. And um, it was all going very well until someone said, would you mind all coming into the kitchen? We'd just, just we'd like to get everybody into the kitchen for a bit. So they went into the kitchen 
And then the host said, can we just all hold hands for, together? Can we just all hold hands? And so my friend held the hand of his work colleague and realized his work colleague had very big hands and never done this before. And then they said, I'd like us to all sing Bind Us Together, Lord. And so in the kitchen in this person's house, the church and the unchurched sang a song, Bind Us Together, Lord. Um, Christians do that kind of thing from time to time. In our joy and enthusiasm, we make mistakes. But the good news is that God is able to redeem our, st- our mistake because my friend's friend who though he wasn't a Christian, Jesus was seeking him and um, he wasn't put off entirely and a few years later became a Christian is now in a, a church in the south coast somewhere serving God with his wife, which is good. Uh, I had a bad experience again um, where a few years ago this, this craze known, that became known as treasure hunting was hitting the churches where people would pray, get prophetic words and what they felt God was saying, look for some clues like man with hat wearing cardigan, wearing a red jumper, um, doing something else. And then all the Christians would go out on the streets and try to find these people and and pray with them and tell them about uh, Jesus. I didn't really want to do this. The trouble is I was leading the group that was going. And so I had to go with them. And so I, I kind of prayed and wrote whatever came into my mind down and thought, fine, we'll give it a go. And the students went out on the streets, very keen, very eager, trying to look for the people uh, whereas I, I just went and sat on a bench and had a coffee and I said to the Lord, if you want me to speak to someone, they've got to match this description exactly or I'm not, but I'm not going to go look for them, God. So I didn't find anyone. And then on the way back to the church building, and we went to a, a park where there were some young people doing skateboarding and the, someone said, why don't we go and preach the gospel to these young people? And no one put their hand up. And because I was the group leader, someone said, Jess, why don't you do it? And because I have pride issues, I said, okay. And went into this skateboarders and they were all sat down smoking. And I went up and started chatting to them about our blessed Lord and eternal salvation on offer or whatever I said. Anyway, I got talking to them. And, um, and it dawned on me while talking to them that the guy I was talking to in the location I was sat matched all of the description that I'd written down before I went out, which I found encouraging. He just thought was weird. I prayed for him anyway, and he said, if this works, I'll come to church. I'll see you there on Sunday. So God is able to redeem our mistakes or our bad attitudes and our bad hearts. And Jonah certainly has a bad heart about all of this. He's a loser. But God doesn't just care for losers. He cares for rebels as well. In verse 11, that we read together, God says, should I not pity Nineveh? This city of over 100,000 people with many cattle, should I not pity them? Jonah didn't love them enough even to go and talk to them and tell them. In fact, when God did save them, you think it's a big day in the life of a prophet, but what does he do? Take my life. This is the worst day in ministry I've ever had. People have responded, these unclean types. But God pities Nineveh. He pities the lost and he goes to great lengths to reach people. He commands a fish to swallow a prophet and gives him a second chance. He sends his son to die on a cross to take away our sin because God goes to great lengths to win the people around us that he loves, care, he loves and cares about. A friend of mine named Kieran works as an evangelist um, in Burgess Hill, King's Church, Mid-Sussex in Burgess Hill. And he, he told me a story that several years ago, maybe, 12, maybe 15 years ago, 
he was living in Crawley at the time. And he said, you know, being an evangelist and telling people about Jesus, it, sometimes it doesn't look any more complicated than just being friendly and just showing an interest in someone else. But he was walking somewhere and saw a guy on the street struggling to get a cabinet inside his car. And so he stopped and offered him some help, put his cabinet in the car. They got chatting about what they do. Um, Kieran said, you know, I'm one of those Jesus people. Um, I tell people about Jesus. And this guy said, Cameron, his name is Cameron. He said, well, I'm an atheist. Um, I don't believe in God, and they had a discussion on the street, and that was it. It went their separate ways. Two weeks later, there was a knock at Kieran's door, and he opens the door, and standing there is Cameron. And they both look at each other and just say, it's you. Apparently, it turns out there was a car on fire in Kieran's street, and Cameron had been passing by and knocked on this door, and he just happened to knock on the door of this Christian my friend said, what are the chances? I'm in a, a, a city with 48,000 people and he knocks on my door. What are the chances? He since learned afterwards that it was one in 48,000. But he met Cameron, invited Cameron into his home, gave him a cup of tea. They spent time talking together. They got on very well. A friendship developed. And Cameron and his wife Sue became friends of Kieran and his wife and they would hang out together Kieran would invite Cameron to church socials where they didn't just hold hands and sing binders together. They had dinner together. Kieran often prayed for Cameron and shared his life with him. Well, after a few years, Kieran had to go up to Scotland for work, and he was in Glasgow for five years working, didn't think anything more of the friendship. I suppose they'd just become separated by time and distance. After five years, Kieran returned to Haywards Heath, where he was living, and he got off the train, walked out the train station, and he just said, he just felt like, I don't know why, but he, he lingered a few moments longer. And as he lingered, Cameron and his wife drove past and stopped outside him. And he said, they look like they'd just seen a ghost. I was wearing a white sheet at the time. Um, but he said, they look like they'd just seen a ghost. And they said, what? And they said, Kieran, it's you. He said, we've just come from visiting my mum in hospital and we'd love, we'd love you to pray for us. Could you do that? So Kieran said, of course, I'll pray for you. And they went off. Didn't see them again. Some time later, Kieran was speaking at church and he was sharing about God's heart for the lost and how God loves people and is willing to go to great lengths to reach people. And he used the example of bumping into Cameron and then Cameron knocking on his door and then becoming friends. Well, the next day, he was in the office and he walked out of the church building and there was Cameron's wife, Sue. I just bumped into her. I said, what are you doing here? And he said, well, I work here. Um, in the church here and they got talking again and Sue said that day that we saw you uh, in Hayward's Heath we looked very shocked when we'd seen you because Cameron said to me after visiting the hospital he said we could really do with one of Kieran's prayers right now moments later we bump into you now this couple aren't yet believers I don't know how they're able to hold on to their agnosticism or atheism after that but they're not yet believers but what it shows is God's love for people who are far he goes to great lengths and works with astronomical odds at times to bring people together, to tell people about Jesus. God loves the lost. He pities the Ninevites. He pities the, the ones that we wouldn't want to talk to, that we wouldn't want to give the time of day to. He pities our neighbours and our friends and our family that don't know him. And he wants to show mercy, show mercy to people that we think at times don't really deserve mercy. Belinda Marsh, Graham's wife, was in Eastbourne a few months ago. 
And they, we, they were doing the Love Eastbourne thing. We did Love Seaford. They did Love Eastbourne. They were in the town giving out tokens to people and just looking to cheer people up and make people's day with a little blessing from God of something, a bunch of flowers or some chocolate. And Belinda was on her way home, um, she, but she realized she had one more token in her pocket and felt in her, that, felt in her kind of spirit just in, inside, felt, oh, maybe I, I should go to Primark. So she went to Primark and she felt God tell her, I want you to buy the shopping of the person in this shop that I'm going to point out to you. So she went to the till and loitered. And there was a woman in the till who had several children who were being very noisy. Um, and this woman was clearly bothering the people around her. She caught the eye of another lady in the queue looking at her. And she said to her, what are you looking at? And rather than doing the British thing and looking away, this other woman stared back and said, I can look at whoever I want, thank you. And there's a bit of a set two in the queue. And there's that kind of mood. And Belinda felt God speak to her and said, I want you to buy that lady shopping. <laughs> she said, that lady? She's mean. She was being rude to people. She was, you know, telling her kids off loudly. And, but she said, okay, I'll buy this lady shopping. And this lady got closer to the queue, grabbed a few more items just before she paid. And, and just as she was about to pay, Belinda stepped up and said, I want to pay for your shopping. Do you mind if I pay for your shopping? And the lady, she said, she just looked very astounded and said, Why? <laughs> Why would you do that? Belinda said, I didn't really know what to say. So I just said, I just felt like you could do with a break. Bought her a shopping and walked away. And as she was walking away, she felt God say to her and say, Who are you to decide who's deserving of mercy? Belinda's phrase was, God wanted me to show mercy to the most undeserving person in the queue. As Christians, God wants us to love, to forgive, to tell people about Jesus and often tell the most undeserving people in the queue. I want to finish by telling you a story about a man named Sir Nicholas Winton. He was an Englishman who was responsible for rescuing 669 mostly Jewish children from Czechoslovakia, Czechoslovakia on the eve of World War II. Um, this isn't a funny story. What? All right, fine. Did the thing pop up? Okay, fine. Um, he was responsible for rescuing children from the eve of uh, World War II. He'd seen the, the escalating problems in the world and seen the rise of Hitler and Hitler's invasion of Czechoslovakia. And so went over. He was, he was working as a stockbroker in London, but went over to Czechoslovakia to try to do something about it. He set up a, a charity to try to rescue children. And he did what he could. He found homes for kids all across the UK to get them out in time before the war broke out and the Jews were sent to their labor camps and many of them killed. He started what became known as the, the Czech Kinder Transport. We have a video of this man in 1988 on This Is Your Life as the, some of the, the scale of what he achieved was played out for him. So God says to Jonah, should I not pity Nineveh, the poor and the broken, those that have it all together but don't have Jesus? He sends us a second time into the world, into this town, to do what we can, to, to do all that we can, in order that by all means we might save some. Now, Ultimately, it's not about us becoming Nicholas Winton's, 
because we have one of whom it will be said one day, stand and sing if you've had your life saved by this man. And we will join with myriads upon myriads of people in glory as we declare Jesus has rescued us. He has borne the penalty in himself. And all he does to ask, to us is to ask us, will you go to those that I pity, those that I care about? Will you show mercy to those that deserve it least in your eyes? And would you express my heart for the world, for the towns that you live in? Let's pray and we're going to respond together by singing. Heavenly Father, thank you for the great love with which you've loved us. That we should be called children of God. Those who make mistakes get it wrong, who disobey. Thank you that the word of the Lord comes to us a second time and a third time and a fourth time. And I ask, Lord, that you would help us to do all that we can, to be friendly to those around us, to care about those that we live around, do all that we can, that by all means we might rescue some. God, have mercy on us, have mercy on this town, have mercy on our friends, have mercy on our family. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.